Good morning. So my family has always had a long-held tradition of playing games whenever we could get together. So Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, whatever family could come into town, inevitably after the meal was done, we would all get together and spend the evening playing games. So when I was younger, I can remember drifting off to sleep and hearing the sound of fun happening and thinking, oh, it's just so wonderful. And as I got older, I realized that that's what I was drifting off to because it was early in the evening. As the evening went on, things tended to get a little more heated. Inevitably, one of the games that they would want to play would be called Rail Barons. And um, Rail Barons, it's very complicated, and I could tell you about it, except I really don't understand it because I'm always in bed, still. Um, but it is a game of, you know, getting railroad companies and going across the country and I don't know, lots of things that go into it, but it's very complicated. There are pages and pages of rules and um, it's extremely detailed. So to do it takes a long time to understand it and, and really the reality is this game takes forever to play. It's like six to 10 hours minimum, right? And so it is a long process. They are really invested in this. And so they would get together and they'd start playing somewhere around 9 p.m. and about 5 a.m. someone would be declared a winner. So that gives you a little picture of what my household would look like after holidays. Now, because they loved this game, but it became such a huge time and energy investment, and well, let's be honest, we all kind of got older and we just can't hang till 5 a.m. anymore, they decided that they would create an abridged version. They'd revise the rules, try and figure out a way that it could be played in slightly less time. And so they got it down to about a four or five hour game. But the problem was, depending on which family members were present, some flat out refused to play the abridged version. They were the original rules or die type people. So consequently, Rail Barons is not pay, played quite as often as it once was in my household because it became quite a dividing factor. Some of us really like our rules, right? It's comfortable. We know what to expect. We understand exactly what's gonna come next. We don't like change. There's comfort in the old way of doing things. It was certainly true for the early Jewish people. The Pharisees and religious rulers at the time had boiled their relationship with God down to 613 rules or commands. They knew exactly what they had to do to keep God happy. And they knew what to do if they broke one of those rules or commands. There might be earthly consequences, but they knew they had to go and make atonement. A blood sacrifice was required. They understood what was expected of them. Obey the rules, you're good with God. Disobey the rules, you know the consequence and you're clearly gonna to need to make a sacrifice. Now, this is both good and bad, because the reality is you know exactly what's expected of you. It's pretty straightforward. And you know exactly what to do if you fall short. You go make a sacrifice. And the reality was 
Pharisees, whose entire life consisted of following the rules, could meet with some success living in that format because literally all they did was follow the rules and tell other people to follow the rules. But the average Joe who was trying to support their family and trying to make a living and, and get through the day could be quite challenging. And so you knew you were going to need to make atonement because God, we wanted to keep him happy. This type of relationship that occurred became a very eyes up relationship. It was all about following each and every rule and knowing exactly what it was that you needed to do to keep God happy. It left very little room for being aware of what was going on around you. It was all about following the rules. Keep God happy and he will bless you. Upset God, you will suffer. It was a system that was designed to keep us eyes up and focused. Now, again, for many people, this was okay because they liked to know what to expect. They could follow rules. You may see it play out in your own families to some degree. I know I see it in mine. And, um, you know, both of my children are lovely and sweet beautiful girls who are um, who love God and who pursue him and who are kind and good to each other and to others, but they're also very different in a lot of ways. So my oldest daughter is a rule follower by nature. She doesn't necessarily need to know why there's a rule. She is just very happy to follow it. Whatever I need to do, I'll follow it. Right? The traditional edu education system works beautifully for her. She loves it. Please, can I color code my notes? It brings her joy. My youngest daughter, not so much. Don't misunderstand, she's every bit as loving and kind and intelligent. But she's the hands-on kinesthetic learner. She's going to dive into life. And she wants to know why she needs to know something. Likewise, while she usually means no disrespect, she's also going to need to understand the purpose of a rule before she's going to follow it. When they were little, I would explain them by saying that I would have to spend my days convincing my oldest daughter to think outside the box, to be creative, to color outside the lines. And I'd have to convince my youngest daughter that there was a box and sometimes it was okay to be in it. Inside the box, people like to know exactly what is expected of them and what's going to happen if they don't meet that expectation. So the Old Testament law might have been burdensome and impressive at times, but it was comfortable 
because expectations were clear. And then enters Jesus. Jesus who took their laws and turned them upside down. Jesus who taught that he came to fulfill the law. Who said that what really made God happy was not checking off the boxes next to the laws, but instead that your heart was changed. With Jesus, it was less about eyes up and more about heart open. You see, the eyes up relationship makes it really challenging to see what's going on with others around you. It becomes easy to exclude them except for how they help you or get in your way. And that fed into the mentality we talked about. That idea of obey God and prosper, disobey and suffer. Jesus tried again and again throughout his ministry to dispel that. It was this belief that led the Pharisees to ask him, well, what did this blind man do? Or what did his parents do that he would be blind? Jesus said, nothing. Neither he nor his parents sinned that he would be blind. But I will be able to use this so that you can learn about me. That they could learn and know Jesus better. This heart-first relationship that Jesus taught presupposes that the people around you matter. That living out our faith must involve others. That relationship, rather than just rules, was what God was asking for. You see, God knew that it was entirely possible to uphold these rules and still hate your fellow man. He knew you could uphold these rules and still not know him. The Pharisees and Sadducees did it very well. It was an oppressive system, one where they looked down on others with disdain, one where they only saw themselves as elevated. They could spend their whole life following the rules, and it would have little to no impact on their heart. The law had loopholes. And let's be honest, humans are masters at loopholes. Do you have teenagers? If I'm honest, I was definitely one of those teenagers. I had mastered the art of understanding exactly what I needed to do to get an A. Nothing more, nothing less. How much homework did I have to do to get an A? How much effort did I need to put into my project to get an A? What time commitment did I have to bring to be able to get an A? And what often ended up happening was a conversation with my mother that went something like this. But I got an A. 
but you didn't put any effort into it. But I got an A. Yes, but it was far from your best work. But I got an A. Which would usually leave her sighing, shaking her head and saying to me, imagine what you could do if you gave something your whole effort. I think that's what Jesus was saying. Imagine what you could do if you put your whole heart into this. Imagine the difference we could make if you were all in. The Pharisees did not like this message. It was contradictory to everything they had built their lives upon. And so they took every opportunity they could to try to discredit Jesus. They would challenge him publicly. They would try to trip him up on commandments from the Old Testament and ways to live their lives. In one particular case, after they had had two or three passes at him, they sent in a lawyer. They said, all right, buddy, you know the law. Get on in there and trip him up. And that's where we pick up with this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, he replied. Do this, and you will live. The conversation could have ended there, but it didn't. Because the lawyer's goal was to find a loophole. And so his next question was to justify himself, and he said, who is my neighbor. You see, he was actually referring to a command from the Old Testament found in Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18, which says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. This definition of neighbor was specific to the Jews. It was a teaching on how to live in community with other Jews. They were told to love people like themselves as they would love themselves. Jesus is not content with that answer. And being the wise teacher that he is, he knows the best way to get his point across is to let them come up with the answer themselves. So he tells a story and it's most likely a story you have heard before. He tells them that a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by thieves. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him on the side of the road half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road at the same time. And when he saw the man, he crossed to the other side. A little while later, a Levite came traveling down the same road. 
And likewise, when he saw the man, he crossed the road and continued down the other side. But a Samaritan was traveling. When he came upon the man, his heart was broken for him. And he stopped. And he cared for the man. He took pity on him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his donkey and took him to a close-by inn where he cared for him. The next day, as he was getting ready to leave, he gave two denarii to the innkeeper. And he said, please meet all of his needs. Look after him. When I am on my way back and I return, I will stop and pay you anything else you are owed. And then Jesus turned and looked at the lawmaker. And he said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now I am sure there was a prolonged silence at this point in time. As the lawyer desperately thought through his arguments, how can I get out of this? Coming to no conclusion other than God's truth, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go. Go and do likewise. This was conversation stopping for a host of reasons. You see, not only did Jesus radically expand their definition of neighbor, he made the Samaritan the hero of the story. Now understand, Samaritans and Jews, they did not get along. They didn't want to be in each other's presence. They considered each other as distant as you could get. They wanted no affiliations. Jews were 100% sure that if a Samaritan was walking down the street, they wouldn't stop and help them, just like they wouldn't stop and help a Samaritan. So the idea, the concept, that a Samaritan was the one God was pleased with, whereas the Jewish priests and Levites were the one disobeying God, this was earth-shattering. A completely different way of looking at themselves and all that they believed. This new idea Jesus continued to bring to the people time and time again. The idea that loving someone else was how we showed God we loved him? Mind-bending. But Jesus taught that loving, helping, serving, when you did this to the least of these, you did it unto him. When you love someone else well, you are loving me well. 
He wasn't asking for blood. He wasn't asking for an animal sacrifice to be brought to the temple. No, instead, he was asking for living, breathing, loving, talking, serving sacrifices of our lives. He was asking for us to be all in. Because he knew rule following can be habit changing. But loving well is life-changing. Jesus spent his three years of ministry trying to help people recognize that he was bringing something new to the table, something all-inclusive, something heart-changing. In education and in psychology, you'll hear a lot about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivation is when you're motivated by something outside of yourself, right? We see this in schools a lot. You get the gold star because you, put, you brought your homework in, or you get the A because you put just the right amount of effort in. Um, things like that. The Old Testament law was based a lot on that. I did the right thing so God is happy with me. Intrinsic motivation is when the desire to do something comes solely from within yourself. You want to do it because it's all you can do, because you are passionate about it, because without doing it, you feel lost. Intrinsic motivation is that desire from deep within. And here's the thing that's really cool. When we know Jesus, when we are walking with God, and when the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts, imagine what that intrinsic motivation can look like. All of your gifts, all of our passions, the hard wiring that we have within us, plus the power of the Holy Spirit, that's heart change in the highest level. That is unstoppable. So knowing that Jesus is looking for this heart change, relationship-driven expression of our love for God, does that mean there's no rules? What, what about the Ten Commandments? Paul addresses that for us. In Romans, he writes the church, and he's giving them instructions on how to live together in community. Specifically, he'd been talking about managing money and, and paying our taxes and being good citizens of the towns that we lived in. But then he continues to go on and start to speak directly to the heart of the matter. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The reality is that this new covenant with Jesus is freeing. It is life-giving. It is joy-bringing. It is risky. It is hard. And it requires us to be all in. When we love our neighbors as we are called to, the standard is actually higher than the Ten Commandments. 
Erwin McManus, a, a well-known author, states that the Ten Commandments are really the lowest common denominator among what makes us human. What Jesus is calling to is revolutionary. It is larger than that. It's not just don't murder, but don't hate. No, don't speak or think unkind words. It's not just don't commit adultery. It's don't even entertain the idea of a temptation. You see, rules manage behavior. But Jesus was interested in the heart. But here's the deal. On our own, there's no way we can do this. Heck, we couldn't even do the law. Which is why the Holy Spirit lives within us. Which is why we need to continually learn and grow and love. It's why we're here. It's why we come together in community to learn who Jesus is. It's why we read the Bible to see how he loves. It's why we go to small groups so we can wrestle with each other, figure out the stuff that's tough. And we have the promise that the Holy Spirit will be working. Galatians 5.22 tells us, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. It's a daily walk. It's learning about him every day. It's pursuing him every day. It's putting his will above our will every day. The law exists to show us where we fall short. When we are walking in the spirit, we don't need to be shown that. When you are walking in the Holy Spirit, when we are walking in his love, it is not the absence of law, but it is the fulfillment of law. You don't have to regulate kindness, goodness, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. There are no laws that form against that. So what does that mean? What does that mean for those of us who love our boxes? And what does it mean for those of us who live outside our boxes? It means that God values relationship. God is less interested in checking off your right and wrongs and more interested in the condition of your heart. In fact, he would go so far as to tell us that our relationships with others directly impact our relationship with him. 
During the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about the giving of sacrifices. And, and during that time, not all the Jews lived very close to a temple. For often, for many of them, this was a trek. So they would need to travel hours, days, to be able to go to the temple and make atonement. It wasn't something they did every day. Certainly two times a year if they were lucky, maybe a few times more than that. It was a huge undertaking. And Jesus says, when you come to the temple to give your offering, and you remember that you are in conflict with your brother, leave it. Go and make peace. Then come back and present your offering. Now we know that going and making peace, we are called to live in unity, but only so far as we have control over it. So this may not mean complete reconciliation with someone. But it does mean pursuing Jesus' love. We are called to pay attention to the relationships we're in. They matter to God, and so they matter to us. The way we love others is a direct reflection of how we love him. It's why we're here right now, learning how to love him more and what it looks like to live it out every day in our lives. How do we love others as we love ourselves? And the reality is, at the Last Supper, Jesus actually revised this command. He upped his game, if you will. So they sat around the Passover table. Jesus washed each disciple's feet individually. He had a moment with each and every one of them. He acknowledged that one of them would betray him. And he told them, I will only be with you for a little while more. They didn't understand it at the time. They had no idea what the next few days would hold, that he would be betrayed by one of them, arrested, beaten, tortured, crucified, and killed. They didn't understand that, but he did, which is what makes his command all that more profound. New command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I'm sure at that moment, each and every man could think of a way that Jesus had loved him well. Matthew was a tax collector despised by his community, and yet Jesus called him to his inner circle. Nathaniel had mocked him openly, saying, what good can come from Nazareth? And yet he was invited right alongside Jesus. I am sure each of them had moments where they felt completely unlovable, and yet Jesus had loved them unconditionally. Must have been very quiet in that room as they 
wrestled with what it would mean for them to love others in the way that Jesus loved them. Jesus didn't mince words. We were called to love others because he loved us. And here's the thing. When the world sees this completely irrational, this completely life-altering, heart-first, relationship-changing love, they will know that we are his. And that kind of love is irresistible. And they will want to know more. More about who he is and how he loves them. Let's stand together and pray. Jesus, thank you so much that your love is irresistible. Thank you, God, that you pursue us relentlessly even when we feel unlovable. God, thank you that even while we fall short, you pick us up and put us back on the path of relationships and love. Help us, Lord God, to love well, that when we do, others might see you. In Jesus' name, amen. So go this week, know that you are loved and you can love well, and through that, others will come to see Jesus. Have a great week.